up? And welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I have officially run out of alternative greetings. It's been too long in quarantine. My brain is fried. I'm at my wit's end, Cash. How you doing, man? You know, I was doing all right, but um, your greetings kind of are what kept me going a lot of times with these podcasts. You know, like we're, we've been cooped up for two months, no basketball, no sports, kind of running out of content and, and getting together and doing these pods and hearing what you came up with kind of fueled me, man, for the rest of the week. And I don't know, you, you mailing it in on the, on the greeting just, just has me running on empty now. I don't know how much energy I have for this pod. Well, I guess I got to get back in the lab, man. And it's, you know, like the the NBA is talking about coming back and the players are saying they need like at least three weeks to ramp back up and get into game shape. I, I'm, I might be at that point as well, man. I need uh, need a little bit of time because, you know, if the NBA does come back, the, these muscles are out of work. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, no, I do, man. You need, you, need a, you need a mini training camp to get back into it. I mean, is it not crazy to think about writing about actual basketball you know, at this point in time like I can't even conceive of that what's funny is I was actually thinking about this um last night and I was thinking about how um when when I was reading the reports about you know players could be called back June 1st or they could have some idea around June 1st of when they could get called back and I was thinking about like what the playoffs might look like and then covering them you know even if it's remotely from you know us sitting in Toronto and wherever the games are and I was thinking about like what that'll be like even for us like from the media perspective and you know in no way do I expect tears uh for the media who you know will hopefully still be employed when the playoffs start but it it is we've gotten so used to this in a way that it's like almost strange to think about writing about basketball that's actually going on and breaking down you know matchups and stuff that's going on like you know we've been we've been doing the hypothetical playoff um, predictions and matchups and breaking those down. And I guess in a way that feels normal because it's, it's the same format we would have used to break down real playoffs, but there's still like something missing in it, right? That we're not, we're not actually using anything that we've seen in the last two rounds because there are no rounds. And so, yeah, the thought of actually watching, reacting, and then analyzing and or writing about what we've watched, like actually seems kind of foreign to me, which, which is hilarious. Why don't we start there and, and just talk about the return to play scenarios because it does seem like they're gaining more and more traction. And the latest report, which was from uh, Shams Charania and Sam Amick at The Athletic, was that there are serious discussions going on about doing the Bubble City in Disney World. And that is seemingly the clear front runner right now to host whatever might remain of the NBA season. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, both just because of the sheer space and the facilities that are available there, but also obviously because Disney owns ESPN, which is the league's biggest broadcast partner. So I think there's a certain element of symbiosis and synergy there that might allow this to work. I think like the biggest development over the last week or so in terms of these conversations is this idea that if somebody does test positive, they're not just going to shut the league down. They will isolate that player. I would think they would have to put things on pause for at least a day or maybe two to test everybody else and make sure that there aren't any other cases. It seems really improbable to me that if one person tested positive that there wouldn't be other cases. And this is the, like, I don't know how realistic it is that if they get a positive test that they're just going to be able to, to continue on. And then, you know, maybe eventually reintroduce that player. If that player's team is still alive two weeks later. And I think maybe, you know, the hope on the part of the league is that players are just going to exercise an abundance of caution because if they do start back up again, nobody's going to want to be that player who causes everything to shut down again. But they're also saying that, I mean, in this last report from from Shams and Sam, they're saying it's not going to be like a pure bubble city. Like players are going to be able to leave and re-enter, which it just seems like it's opening up a, a massive can of worms. And I don't know, it was already going to be tough for the NBA to control for all the variables at play here. 
but like allowing people to leave and come back, it just seems like it's going to make it too difficult to keep a handle on this. Yeah, absolutely, man. And like, all you have to do is think about, you know, imagine a, a West finals, you know, wherever that is, I guess the West would be in Vegas if that's the case, or maybe it's in Orlando anyway, but you're in the West finals, you're two or three games into it. Oh, uh, LeBron just contracted COVID. What ha- Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's a very real possibility. Kawhi, and I'm not saying, you know, obviously in the grand scheme of life, you know, no one player is worth more than the other. But like from an NBA perspective, obviously we know that is the case. And LeBron or Kawhi or AD or Paul George gets COVID in the middle in the middle of what, you know, the NBA was looking at as like the most anticipated conference finals in so long and LA, LA. And, and it's like, oh, well, now what do you do? Do you pause the entire conference finals for two weeks and then therefore the playoffs like do you just say we keep going but LeBron is now out like it it, it, even when you get to a point like I am right now where I'm a lot more hopeful that we will have a conclusion to the 2019-20 season than I have been at any point during the lockdown all it takes is like two minutes of reasoning and thinking about it and then you realize oh wait why am I more hopeful just because the NBA is more willing to do it now. Like the same right. issues like still exist. And it's sort it's the same reasoning behind, you know, like all 50 states have loosened their stay-at-home restrictions in some form or fashion. And they haven't really met the benchmarks that public health officials have been saying all along they need to meet in order for us to start, you know, getting back to some semblance of normalcy. Like all that seems to have happened is that people have decided that they're fed up living this way, which I totally understand. But it, it doesn't seem like they've actually gotten to a point where we've seen enough progress to justify uh, reopening to the extent that things are reopening. And I sort of feel the same way with the NBA. And I, I think, you know, the one perspective that I can kind of get behind and, and you know, where I can rationalize this is if they're thinking about next season, Obviously, they want to have a 2020-2021 season. I think maybe they're looking at this as an opportunity to see what works and what doesn't. Whether it's going to be feasible to have a season next year and what that season might look like. And I think almost as like a trial balloon to see both what the public perception is going to be, how safe they can keep the players, and just how feasible from a logistical perspective it's going to be. I think they're going to probably get a lot of data points from this that is going to help them plot out what next season might look like. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's one a lot of people probably aren't thinking of um, in terms of like how even a makeshift end to this season might aid them in planning for a very different season next year. The thing too that I keep coming back to, and I know in terms of the business side of it, like this will have no bearing. And if the NBA can salvage part of the season, they will, and they're not going to care how fans view a championship or whatever. But like you do start to wonder, and I look, I get what Doc Rivers was saying, and I agree with him in the sense where you know when he said the only the only teams that care about the asterisk are the losers, right? And it's this you can look at any year, last year. People wanted to asterisk the Raptors championship because of all the Warriors injuries. But it's like the Raptors don't care. And in 2015, the Warriors didn't care that Kyrie and Kevin Love got hurt. Like they won the championship. And that's all anyone remembers. But I do wonder in this case, it's not just players getting injured in the usual proceedings of basketball and a playoff series and a season. You know, if it's like, I don't know if a team wins a shorter tournament, if a team wins a series because a guy, a star on the other team had to miss it because he contracted the virus that the world has been shut down for. Like I do wonder, even though I know it doesn't matter in terms of the decision the NBA is going to make, I do wonder if like, this is, this is truly the first time where even to us, like a champion will feel just less, it won't be worthless, but it'll definitely feel less valuable. And I think even for fans of that team, I, I don't know if you'll be able to get the same satisfaction out of it. And again, I, I know that's not what matters right now, but I think I think it's a fair question to ask, even for people like us that usually would never asterisk a championship. You know, a champion is a champion, and luck and the bounces are, are all things that you need in the journey of winning a championship. I just think this this time is so much different. 
that um, I think it would almost be a shame to look back and and not really value, you know, what would ultimately be, I think, the 74th champion in NBA history or whatever it is. I think it depends, right? Like, it depends on how smoothly the whole process might go, whether a vital player might actually end up having to sit out because they contract the virus. If things go off, you know, more or less without a hitch, I, I like, I think there'll still be a lot of gratification to be had. I, I think the big thing is like, none of this is going to feel the same, right? There's no home court advantage. There's no rejoicing with fellow fans, at least not in person. And, you know, there's no championship parade. It's just, I think, you know, you lose a lot of the interactive communal aspect of fandom that tends to make sports the sort of special spectacle that it is. And I don't know. I don't know what that's going to feel like. Honestly, I don't think any of us really does. And I don't think any of us will until we actually see it happen. And that's taking for granted that they're actually going to be able to not just start the season up again, but actually finish it which I think is very much still a question mark. And the other thing is, in these proposals, like they, the league seems intent on playing some more regular season games. And I think the big reasoning behind that, obviously, is, is to fulfill the contract with the local TV networks by hitting that magical 70-game plateau. I just think that that's a terrible idea. Like, and I understand it from a financial perspective. And obviously, I think I'm not, I'm not totally cynical about this. Like, I think for a lot of the players, especially the ones that are, you know, like in the championship hunt, there are reasons beyond money that they want to come back and play. This is their livelihood, but it's also their passion, you know, and like these are extremely devoted, competitive athletes who, in a lot of cases, probably just want to finish what they started and have a postseason after essentially going through the grind of nearly an entire regular season. I think to not have anything to show for it, to not even get a chance to test your medal in a postseason setting has got to be really disappointing and probably a very empty feeling. So I think it's not just money, but I think the primary motivator behind these uh, attempts to, to get the season back up and running are financial. And so I understand, you know, the broadcast part of the equation and that being a reason that they want to play more regular season games and get to 70 if they can. But like, you're doubling the size of the bubble, basically, right? Like from 16 teams to 30. And you're also, you know, creating a larger time frame, which is just more time in which something could potentially go wrong. And you're, you're calling back a bunch of these players and a bunch of these teams who are completely out of the race for what? I, I think that's just like a little bit short term in terms of their thinking there. And I, and I would hope that ultimately they'll come around to seeing that, you know, the benefits of potentially completing a postseason are going to be greater than the risks of trying to figure out how to finish like a token final stretch of regular season games. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes the most sense. I know there's been talk, at least reports about you know, maybe using some of the, the teams that were not going to be playoff teams as like tune-up teams, you know, they'd play like exhibition games just to get the playoff teams ready. But then, then you have to ask yourself, like, I, like if you're a player on one of those teams, why would, I guess the, the counter to that is that like, well, how is that any different than a, play, a team playing out the stretch in March and April? That's clearly out of the race anyway. Like, yeah, I, I get that argument, but the difference is that usually when you're playing out the stretch in March and April, you're not doing it in a bubble city. Uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, so that's the 2020 season in a nutshell. Right now, you wanna you wanna talk about um, the real basketball that matters? Apparently, the 1997-1998 season and the the last dance. Yeah, I mean it's probably gonna be our last opportunity to do so. Uh, the last dance was done, and I I, I kind of got in the habit of looking forward to those Sunday nights and you know, you really felt like everybody was sort of tuning into it. And it was a thing that we're all talking about because what the hell else were we going to talk about aside from the virus that's ruining all of our lives. And I definitely think that I'm going to miss that. I don't know. I guess I'll ask you, what do you think the legacy of this project is going to be? I think um, that's a good question. I think the legacy will be that uh, a few things. I think it 
it really will be remembered as introducing the the mythical side of Michael Jordan and what made his airness such a cultural phenomenon to a younger generation that had never actually watched him play basketball. And, you know, I don't, I don't think – like I've seen some people – like even friends of mine, uh, like on Twitter, on the social media, whatever, you know, it's like say like, wow, like, well, now I'll never doubt it again. Like whether MJ was the GOAT. And like, that's ridiculous. Like if, first of all, if you think Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time, I'm not going to argue with you. I, you know, I, I've always said between him and LeBron, it's essentially a toss up to me. But if your mind was changed by a documentary that is so clearly driven, at least in part by Michael Jordan's perspective, like that you should kind of reevaluate the way you evaluate things. Um, but I do think there is a legacy there where, it, you know, that, that mythical status was introduced to a younger generation that didn't really have any real tangible experience with it. I think another legacy of it is something, as you mentioned, we discussed last week, as it was this like cultural moment, you know, and, and this shared cultural experience during a time when there were no shared sporting events like uh, that became cultural experiences. And I think that's basically it. Like, I, I look, I think from an entertainment perspective, if you look at this as a uh, a sports history piece, you know, a 10-part sports history piece that, you know, wanted to entertain and inform, but mostly entertain, I think it was phenomenal. You know, I think some of the footage from 97, 98 was incredible. The stories were really awesome. The, um, the nostalgia was on point. The soundtrack was incredible. Like, it was a very very good piece of television for 10 hours. Unbelievable. If you want to look at it from the vantage point of journalistic integrity and as a documentary, probably not well done because it it was not objective at all. Michael Jordan had the last word on basically everything. He was not challenged on anything, you know, Pizzagate, uh, at the time, well, I should not use the word phrase Pizzagate because that was used by uh, I can know something entirely yes, different. Yes, Republican conspiracy theory. So my apologies although, would you. you be shocked if people did their own, you know, Reddit sleuthing, found out <laughs> what that pizza place in Salt Lake City was, and somebody went and shot it up? Probably not. Yeah, yeah. In Michael Jordan's name, given the state of the world, probably not. But yeah, no, I like that's a perfect example, right? <clears throat> you know, we that story's been told before about how. You know, Jordan and Tim Grover, his trainer, were convinced it was food poisoning from this Utah pizza place and how five guys showed up to deliver it. But, you know, the, the guy who actually delivered it and claims he made it and worked it, I think it was a pizza, like, has disputed those claims. And I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I don't know. I wasn't there. And, and we'll never know. It's one person's word against another or two people's word against one other. But the point is, you're like, a true documentary and an objective piece of journalism is if there are two sides of a story, you hear both sides of the story. You know, and it's kind of up to the viewer to either draw their own conclusions or just accept that there are different sides of a story. In The Last Dance, we don't really get those sides of a story. For the most part, we get Michael Jordan's vantage point on a story. You know, we yeah. get that George Carl was a jerk to him because he walked by and did his in a restaurant. We get that five guys showed up to deliver one pizza, clearly knowing it was for Jordan and probably spiked it so that he would be sick in what became the flu game. Like, And there are so many examples of that where... Again, if you, you're judging this on a, a strictly entertainment perspective, it was phenomenal. If you're judging it from a documentorial perspective, it, it lacked. Yeah, I mean, you don't... Gary Payton's in the documentary for like a minute. He talks about how George Carl finally made the decision to have him guard Michael Jordan. Talked about what he was doing to try and throw Mike off his game. And then we see Michael watching that interview on an iPad and laughing his ass off. And that's the last word. Like you don't see Gary Payton getting an iPad and watching Michael Jordan say, I had no problem with the glove and then give Gary Payton a chance to respond. And like, I'm sure Gary Payton would have had his own shit to talk. Like the guy was a notoriously fantastic trash talker. And again, that's not what the documentary was. And I think that's fine at the end of the day. Like I, you mentioned nostalgia. For me, I think there was a lot of secondhand nostalgia because I wasn't really watching a ton of basketball at this point in my life. Like that final season, I was 10 years old and was more of a hockey fan at that point in time. The Raptors were still in their infancy. And like I've said in the past, I, my, my basketball fandom didn't really explode until Vince Carter showed up, which was the year after the Bulls dynasty ended. So for me, it's like there's a lot of nostalgia that was evident in the way that this project was made. 
but I didn't feel it necessarily on a personal level because I wasn't actually watching this while it was going on in the first place. But I do think it's like a really interesting period in NBA history to revisit. And that was the thing that I enjoyed most about it was just getting, first of all, to see a lot of footage that I hadn't seen before, both behind the scenes and in game. And just, you know, getting a chance to uh, revisit a cast of characters uh, and sort of reacquaint myself with guys that I'd really only read about. And as far as, you know, journalistic integrity, I think, look, we don't need to harp on this. It's been pointed out by a ton of people already. This is essentially like Jordan's account of what happened. And I think that's fine. I think, you know, I still appreciated getting this account from Jordan's perspective, even if I don't think that this should be, and I don't necessarily think it will be the like definitive document of the Bulls dynasty. I think it will still be the thing that reignited the public fascination with that team. And I think, you know, for me, like I read playing for keeps when I was in high school and I've been rummaging through my shit trying to find my copy of that book for the last couple of weeks. And I think it's like in storage somewhere, but like I have half a mind to go and drag it out of storage and read it again. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. And I'm sure, you know, something like the Jordan rules or like playing for keeps the Halberstam book are, are going to have something of a resurgence as uh, you know, the public is sort of in the throes of bulls mania. And I think there's, there's definitely value in that and, and say what you will about the veracity of the accounts or, you know, how Jordan always gets the last word and how this whole thing is essentially, you know, a, a tribute to him. But at the end of the day, they needed Jordan's approval to greenlight the project. And I think ultimately it's still better that this exists in its compromised form than for it to not exist at all. 100%. Yeah. Look, I think in general, in sports media, and especially in the TV side, um, in the video format, like, you know, a, a piece of content should always do one of, if not two things, it should inform and entertain, right? And that's not just sports media, for the most part, that's media in general. And I think, I think this succeeded in 100% entertaining and in, in, in a way informing as well, especially depending on what generation you are. And, that's what I'm saying. Like I, yeah, I completely acknowledge that it is far from perfect, and especially if you're looking at it from a journalistic perspective. But it entertained the hell out of us, and you know the way things ended up going this year. It entertained the hell out of us at a time when, let's be honest, especially you know from a sports fans and sports media perspective, we friggin' needed it. So, yeah, all the power to you know everyone involved with putting that together, and and just from like a work standpoint too, like pulling all that footage and making it work. And again, I mentioned just, you know, even something as small as how awesome that soundtrack was and some of the brilliant ideas, <clears throat> even in putting the doc together, you know, I'm not sure if it was, I think his name's Jason Hare, right? The the, doc, mm -hmm. the the director, not sure if it was his idea or someone else's, but even as something as simple as, Hey, let's, let's make sure we get Mike's reactions when we're showing him these other people talking about the same story and, and including that in the documentary and the way they cut it together so that it's like, you're watching Gary Payton tell a story and then it's quickly cutting to Michael watching on the iPad. And then it's cutting back to us watching like, you know, little things like that. It's, it, it, it was really well done regardless of how I or anyone else feels about uh, the journalistic part of it. It was a well done document, a piece of entertainment, whatever you want to call it. And um, I'm, I'm glad it exists. I will say, so like the whole kind of impetus for the project happening when it did, you know, Jordan had to agree to unseal the footage that they had, like all the behind the scenes stuff. And I feel like up until the last two episodes, we didn't really see a whole lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And I feel like I was starting to think like, I don't know, I'd kind of gotten to thinking like, really, like you went through all this, like you had to tell this story from Jordan's perspective and like do it essentially on his timeline and on his terms, just so you could show like a few clips of him chiding Scott Burrell at practice. Him gambling with his personal security guards. Yeah. And I mean, like that stuff was great and it added color for sure, but it seemed like maybe it wasn't worth bending over backwards just for that little bit of behind the scenes stuff. But I thought in the final couple episodes, we saw some really good stuff, like him talking shit to Larry Bird after winning that Pacers yeah. series. Like that right there might've made the entire project worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. And also Carl Malone coming onto the Bulls bus 
after losing the, the championship in 98, like, man, I, I didn't expect that. No, I, I didn't expect that either, especially given, you know, what Carl Malone's reputation is and rightfully so based on uh, his personal life. But um, yeah, I think, well, okay. We should separate out those two things though, because no, no, him I... being the sleazebag that he is in his personal life doesn't, the one thing doesn't necessarily have to do with the Agreed. other, I guess. I agree, but at the same time, in general, usually when you have, when your perception about someone is based on them being a sleazebag, you just never expect even moments of like five seconds of sportsmanship. Like I, I just never pictured Malone in that vein. You know, that's something I would have expected like, I don't know, like magic to do or even Larry as much of a shit talker as he was. But like, it's just not something... If someone would have said, you're going to see a clip in the last dance of like one of the guys on MJ's hit list that he eliminated or whatever, going on to the freaking Bulls bus. And dude, like Carl Malone is probably the last guy I would have picked to be that guy that ends up doing that. But I think that also speaks to, you know, the absolute heartbreak for those jazz teams. And and just, you know, I I, I think the documentary was a good reminder of Jordan's hit list in general. And, you know, people... People will remember his personal hit list and the personal vendettas in this series, you know, whether it's because Barkley and Malone won MVPs in 93 and 97, whether it was because LeBradford Smith said something but didn't actually say something, whether, you know, like whatever the case may be, he had all these personal vendettas that everyone's laughing about. But look at like the team hit list that Jordan and the Bulls took out during this run. And it is absolutely ridiculous like on the espn feed they did trivia between um some of the scenes and like one of them what on sunday they showed was that in during their six championship seasons the bulls eliminated uh i believe seven or eight different 60 win teams which is stupid uh they eliminated 20 hall of famers they like patrick ewing for example got eliminated by the bulls four times in that like when you just go back and look at the teams, and I know it's been talked about before, but it, it never ceases to amaze me to go back and look at the absolutely stupendous teams that never got over the hump because they played in the era of Michael Jordan. It's it's something to behold, man. That's That 93 Suns team was phenomenal. The, the 92 Blazers were a great team if you go back and look at it. The 96 Sonics. You know, I've talked about the 97 Jazz. They were a 64-win team with the reigning MVP. They had two winning streaks of 15-plus games in the same season. They had, at the time, one of the top 16-point differentials of all time. But, oh, by the way, they ran into the 69-win defending champions in the finals. Like, it, it's it's unbelievable. And then, yeah, just to think of when you, when you see Carl Malone on that bus, like, imagine, put yourself in his shoes as an athlete, you know, a peak athlete, a Hall of Fame, a legendary athlete in that moment. You just lost to this team for the second year in a row in the finals. You have to know in your head, like your window is closing. Like it, it, it's it's surreal to think about. Which I guess maybe is a natural segue into sort of the note that the documentary closed on, which is this idea that the Bulls left something on the table by not bringing it back and going for a four-peat and what would have been their seventh championship in nine years. Where do you land on that argument. You think they would have done it? No, I don't. I think, um, you know, we talked about this with uh, Jonah and Mike last week when, in our crossover episode, when they were talking about whether they could have won eight in a row, had Jordan never right. stepped away in the middle. I think it, it, there's too much of a mental exhaustion, as much of a physical exhaustion that you could clearly see in this documentary, both at the end of their first three peat in 93 and at the end of their second three peat in 98, like the guys were spent. Um, Scotty Pippen was already starting to deal with a bad back in that series. Like it, I, I just don't think they would have been able to pull it all together and have everything, you know, bounce right for them one more time. And also, you know, again, the thing the documentary doesn't cover and a lot of people have talked about is Michael Jordan suffers a very serious fingerish uh, injury in the following off season. Yeah. Well, um, they don't address it in the documentary, but you can see, like, I could not help every time that they showed him being interviewed. That finger is so fucked up. I don't know. For whatever reason, I couldn't help but focus on it every time that they showed him. He, he messed up his finger with a cigar cutter in the summer yeah. of 98 and probably wouldn't have been able to play the 98-99 season, at least the majority of the season. And I think I think I saw an interview with Jerry Reinsdorf where he said, well, like, I think it was Jerry Reinsdorf. Anyway, someone said, well, if 
if everyone was coming back and they were still going to play together the following season, Jordan wouldn't have been screwing around with a cigar cutter. And I think that's complete BS. Like, unless he was like juggling cigar cutters because he thought he wasn't going to like, I, it's not like I think he was trying to do some weird magic trick and cut himself. He probably cut himself in an accident that would have happened anyway, because it's not like he started smoking cigars in retirement. The guy is on camera before, I think it was game one of the 98 finals saying, uh, or like practice before game one of the 98 finals where he says he only had two beers and one cigar that day. Like, that that incident was probably happening regardless, right? So, like, that's one reason they probably wouldn't have won the title, the mental exhaustion, the physical exhaustion. I just – I think it was asking too much. And this is, like, another thing that goes back to kind of Jordan having the last word. But he says at the end, you know, he thinks they could have convinced everybody to come back on one-year contracts. And then he gets to Pippen and he's like, yeah, Pip would have taken some convincing. But I think just, like, given the opportunity to go for number seven – we could have convinced him. And then it's like, it would have been nice maybe to cut to Scotty Pippen being asked that question. Hey, would you have come back on a one year deal? But no such follow up occurred. And I think obviously that would have been a big thing. I don't think Pippen would have been back. Rodman was basically cooked. I I think he played two more partial seasons after that, but was not the same. I think he played Uh, 35 games total the rest of his career. Right. Pretty much everybody on that team um, except for Tony Kukoc, was was like never the same. So I don't know. Jordan and Kukoc, like could those two, like it, it was a really weird season, obviously. Like let's assume that nothing happens with the cigar cutter and Jordan's just back for 98-99 and it's only a 50-game season, which maybe gives him a little bit more opportunity to rest after that run. And, you know, the eight-seeded Knicks are the team that ends up winning the Eastern Conference, which you know, the Bulls probably could have gotten through that East. I don't think they would have beaten that Spurs team. Me neither. Me neither. Um, but, I mean, I- I'm not even really so much interested in, like, the hypothetical or the what if. I'm more interested in this. There's, like, a little bit of tension between these two ideas. I think part of what makes that Bulls team special and why they continue to live on and burn so bright in the imagination is that they went out on top, right? Like, they didn't lose. And, you know, MJ says in, like, a present-day interview, he's like, he can't accept that. They didn't get a chance to try and do it again. But there's also a clip of him, there's multiple clips, actually, of him during that 97-98 season, one of which shows him in the hotel room saying, like, I'm ready to get out of this life, like, I'm ready for it to be over, just because, like, the attention, the scrutiny, all of it had grown like too exhausting and wearying. But there's another one of him driving when he's talking about some of his contemporaries who have said to him in the past that like they're going to have to get dragged off the court. Like they're not like they're not going to retire until they know for sure that they have nothing left to give. And Jordan's like, that's not me. Like I'm going to walk off the court. He said like straight up, he wants to go out when he knows that he still has two or three good years left because he doesn't want to play in any kind of diminished state. And I guess it's possible to hold both of those ideas in your head at the same time. But the thing is, you won't know for sure when it's over or when you don't quite have it anymore until you lose. Until it's over. And then you'll think, oh, well, like, maybe I should have just gone out on top. You know, maybe I didn't actually want to know that I didn't have it anymore. Maybe I wanted to have that what if. Even if that's frustrating and and you really, like, just want to have the answer, like, could we have won a seventh championship? I think ultimately it's, you know, there's that saying, always leave them wanting more. Yeah. And, and that's what MJ and the Bulls did. Like, there's a reason people basically act like Jordan's Wizards career never happened, right? There, and there's a reason why people act like, Jordan never lost in the playoffs, you know, or like his six, when people talk about his six for six in the finals, they make it sound like he only played six seasons. It's just because of the way the memory is, because as you mentioned, they went out on top. He went out on top a couple of times, you know, whether it was walking away in 93, because then people look at the 95 loss to Orlando as like, yeah, but he had only been back in basketball for a few months. That doesn't count. So if you really just look at his last six seasons, they won six championships and they would have won again if he came back and, like Jordan's legacy is 
not that it needs protection, but so much of that mythical status and his legacy is protected by the fact that he did not come back and allow himself the chance to lose because, you know, what maybe like, how do the LeBron MJ goat like conversations go with the MJ truthers? If they can't say, well, like, yeah, six six in the finals. yeah. What if, what if he comes back in 98, 99 and he gets swept in the finals by the Spurs and for whatever reason, Jordan, like just has a terrible series or something, you know? his legacy and his mythical status are protected by the way his career kind of unfolded. And, you know, some of that was out of his control. Clearly he claims he wanted to come back and try for his seventh, but I think for the sake of his legacy, it's best that he didn't. And I mean, it seems like it was Phil Jackson who was like, nah, it's done. <laughs> Phil Jackson seemed to know, I guess what MJ didn't uh, or, or couldn't accept. Yeah. It was nice. So I, I was just going to quickly say, it was nice to see, Phil back in like the Zen master character and status that I think a lot of us kind of grew up. I don't know if idolizing is the right word, but like the guy who just had the pulse of everybody and was able to bring people together and knew what it was time to walk away because he was this all knowing basketball being, it was nice to be back in a situation where that was the Phil Jackson. We knew instead of the Phil Jackson that ran the Knicks and alienated superstars and said some really problematic things. I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, so let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Steve Nash's 2005 revenge tour. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. I've been waiting to talk to you about this for a while. And finally, after months of work doing the reporting, putting this oral history together, your three-part mammoth of a retrospective, almost 15 years to the day since Steve Nash drove a stake through the heart of the Dallas Mavericks in an absolutely legendary playoff series. You dropped this on the app this past week. It's fantastic. Talk me through this, man. First of all, what prompted you to want to write this? And kind of what, what planted that seed in your head? Because I know you've been working on this in some form or fashion almost since the start of this season. So, so where'd that idea come from? Yeah, so um, in general, like this, this Steve Nash performance in the 2005 playoffs against Dallas has always been one of my favorite, you know, basketball performances ever. You know, growing up as a basketball fan in Canada, we know what Steve Nash, Nash meant to us. I'm sure yourself as well. One of my favorite players ever. And I remember uh, this all happened around the time of my 16th birthday. Um, Steve Nash had he gets MVP game one the night he receives the MVP award he starts a series against the team that in his own words if you read the piece had essentially put him out to pasture 10 months earlier and let him walk as a free agent because they thought he was toast and his back was toast and then proceeds to have you know it's not even an argument like he has the best two weeks of his hall of fame career and especially the last week of it games three four five six goes on this just run that you can't even put into words. And yeah, it was just always one of my favorite moments. I always found um, as I got older and then got in the media game, it, it just seemed like a lot of people had either forgotten about this performance, completely didn't know it existed, and also undermined what Steve Nash meant to the like the modern evolution of the game. And the real reason I ended up wanting to write it is so I, in, uh, in doing a project with, with an NBA player a while ago, one of this player's handlers got into like a debate with me about Steve Nash and, and this player's handler was talking about how Steve Nash was just a system point guard. And like, it was just Mike D'Antoni made his career and blah, blah, blah. And going on about how overrated Nash was. And, and when I brought up that performance in 2005, the person was like, not really, not that they weren't believing me, but they were kind of like, I could tell it wasn't resonating with them. And then when I started like saying some of the numbers 
like a couple, like his exact words were, I'm gonna have to check up on that. Cause like he didn't believe, like when I mentioned, like you really averaged, averaged in the final three games of that series, essentially a 40 point triple double, like 40, 10 and nine. And yeah, it's just one of those things where like, I don't think Steve Nash gets enough credit for the fact that when he needed to be, he was a killer. And, you know, as I mentioned uh, in the piece, like that had this happened in the social media era, it would be unbelievable, but it happened at a time before like social media generation could deem it savage enough for historical preservation. Like it, you know, think about it, think about today in, in the social media era, what basketball Twitter and the memes and like what everything could have been done with an all-star guard being put out to pasture by his former team and, and them throwing him under the bus in a sense when they talk about his like health and what they think he's going to be in the next few years. And then 10 months later, they match up with him in the playoffs, except now he's an MVP and the best player on the best team in basketball. And he just eviscerates them, you know, on national TV and eliminates them and gets that last laugh at the time. I, I just think in today's culture, like that would be insane. And, and basketball Twitter would have a field day with it. And the, the Mavs would have got clowned so hard. And, and yeah, I just, I thought it was like a good story and, and ended up being 15 years essentially to the day when he won the MVP and, and all that. So yeah. I thought it was a story worth telling. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was a basketball fan at the time, but I was more so just a Raptors fan. And this sort of came about at a time when I feel like my basketball fandom was threatening to peter out entirely. Like the, the Vince thing with the Raps had gone so sour. It, it was just like a pretty depressing time to be a Raptors fan. And I think those Suns teams were what sort of brought me back from the brink. And, you know, as soon as I heard that you were writing about this, like the memories of that series against Dallas just came flooding back to me. And the other thing that came back to me, and I don't know if you'll remember this, but before we launched Pound the Rock, we did a demo episode. And in the early days of this podcast, um, when we were doing it with uh, our former colleague, William Liu, we had a segment that, that would close every episode where we do about five to 10 minutes on uh, a playoff flashback and for our demo reel the flashback that that we went to was this Nash series against the Mavs and I'm guessing it was your idea it was just like one of those things where every detail of it had embedded itself in my mind without me really even realizing it and there are particular moments that stick out to me but I want to ask you but like before you started working on this was there any like one particular moment that you were like remembered crystal clearly from that series there was two there was the the um joe johnson fall uh when broke his orbital bone broke his orbital bone and you know if you if anyone read the series or goes on to read it you'll see that to a lot of the suns players and even you know on the mass perspective a lot of people viewed that injury as the reason why the, the suns end up falling short in their championship quest is losing joe johnson so that moment but the one that stuck out the most to me was just the major FU three-pointer that Steve Nash hits to send the game six clincher to overtime and Mike Tirico's reaction to it, just going absolutely insane on the broadcast. And Dirk flipping out at Jason Terry. Yeah, which, um, you know, in part two of the three-part series, uh, a good chunk of it is spent on on that uh, snappage by Dirk on Jason Terry. Um, yeah, that I, I remember that moment extremely clearly, that three and Dirk's reaction. And also the 48-point game, where the Mavs actually win the game pretty comfortably. And they're saying afterwards, they're like, yeah, like we just didn't want to let Steve be a playmaker, basically. So they're just like letting him walk into 17-foot jumpers, floaters. Like they're letting him get to the basket. They're not sending any help. And he only winds up with five assists that game. But he gets 48 points on, what, 20, 20 for 28 shooting, yeah. I think? Yeah. And I think that was just it was just a glimpse into what Nash was capable of. Like his instinct was to be a playmaker first and foremost, but that game I remember just really illuminating for me, the possibility of what he could be as a scorer, if that had been his impulse, but that wasn't the way that he was wired. And I, he talks about that in your piece. Like he talks about his goal was to get the team humming and to make sure everyone was feeling the ball and that everybody got in rhythm. And that is what he considered his job as a point guard to be. And I think it's interesting because like those sort of point guards don't really exist to the same extent these days. Like once upon a time, there was this idea 
of a pure of a pure point guard and what a point guard was supposed to be, and it's exactly what Nash described. And I think the vast majority of point guards now are expected to be scorers first and foremost, and, and that paradigm has really changed in a lot of ways. And I've always wondered what Nash would look like in a contemporary context. And him and D'Antoni have both talked about how they felt like they left something on the table by not having him shoot more threes, by not having him be more of a scorer. And I just think that that's really interesting. And that 48-point game always stuck with me as, as something that showed what he could actually be if being a scorer first guard was what he wanted to do. Yeah, same. I mean, Mike D'Antoni says his, his biggest regret with that team is not forcing Steve to be more a scorer. Uh, you know, then, then Steve talks to me about how, as you mentioned, he just wasn't wired that way, but he clearly could do it. And then, you know, I, I have Quentin Richardson saying, literally, like, if Steve wanted to shoot more shit, I was cool with it. Like, I never thought he was ever going to miss. And and you look at his number, like, whatever it is, 9, 10, 11, 50, 40, 90 seasons in NBA history, Steve Nash has four of them. Like his shooting was insane. And even you mentioned um, just to kind of give people an idea of how insane that four game run he went on was like, you mentioned the 48 point game in game four on 20 of 28 shooting. So in game three, he has 27 points and 17 assists. Okay. And in the 15 years since the only player who has done that in a playoff game is Chris Paul. In game four, he's got 48 points on 70-plus percent shooting. The only player who's done that in 15 years since is Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, game five, he has a 34-point triple-double. And game thir- in six, he has 39, 12, and 9. If you look at his games five, uh, sorry, four, five, six, you know Basketball Reference has that like game score metric? Yeah. He had, I think, a game score of like at least 29 in those three straight games. The only player who has done that, had a stretch of three consecutive playoff games with a game score of 29-plus in the 15 years since, is LeBron James. So it's like, you know, I get that these numbers don't necessarily mean more. Like, like I'm not saying, for example, he had a better run than Kawhi had last year just because Kawhi didn't have three straight game scores of 29. But it is, when you really think about it, like, that is batshit crazy, you know? In game three, he does something that only Chris Paul has done in a decade and a half since. In game four, he does something that only Dirk has done in a decade and a half since. The entire run is something you can say LeBron hasn't done, like he's the only guy who's done in the 15 years since. He he had these like once in a almost generation performances, but he had them game after game after game after game to eliminate the team who gave up on him 10 months earlier. Yeah. This is a little bit off topic, but... That playoff run, I mean, it ended in very disappointing fashion. The Spurs were unbelievable in that series. I don't know if if people really remember it that way, but like Manu Ginobili during that playoff run was just completely insane. Also, I, I just feel I need to point out that Dirt game, you're talking about, you know, four, at least 48 points Against on at OKC. least 70% shooting. 12 for 15 from the field and 24 for 24 from the line. That Dirt game was fucked. Yeah. That was in the West um, Finals against uh, OKC, right? In, in yeah, during their 2011 championship run. That game was insane. But I don't know. I mean, there, there isn't really... Like, a, what, what's a modern, comparable situation to that? So, do you know what I was actually thinking when, when I was, like, looking back at the free agency? What it, I think, would be similar to? Um, so, if you look at, like, Kyle Lowry's maybe first or second free agency with the Raptors, um, when he had now established himself as an all-star, but he was an older all-star. He was a bit of a late bloomer. You know, obviously didn't have the back issues Nash had at the time. But, like, that's kind of the way I was thinking of it when I was thinking about that free agency. Where it was like, okay, a 30-year-old late bloomer, two-time all-star is what Nash was at the time of that free agency. It kind of reminded me of Lowry in either 2014 or even, I guess, 2017 was his second free agency. Imagine if, at the time, um, you know, and it's very similar, like, what the Mavs were where they were this like perennial 50-win team that couldn't get over the hump, couldn't even get to the finals. The Raptors were that for the early portion of Lowry's Raptors tenure. So imagine if in like Kyle Lowry's free agency, he made it known he wanted to come back, got some big offer from a 29-win lottery team, brought it back to the Raptors and said, but I don't want to go. Like if you match this, like I'm staying. I don't, I only want to stay here. And the Raptors said, no, sorry. And then like, Masai Ujiri or Rogers community, like whoever, like, you know, the owners of the Raptors or Masai Ujiri who runs the team made public comments about how, you know, yeah, like I, we love, we love Kyle, but uh, we just don't think he's going to hold up, you know, like, we, like we, which Mark Cuban said publicly in the aftermath of that free agency. 
and then Kyle Lowry becomes like an MVP the next year, you know? Yeah, I mean, given the way that Raptors history unfolded for the first like 20 odd years of their existence, that's how it should have played out. Right, but but that's what I'm saying. Like, imagine that. Imagine the anger that would have been existed in Toronto, you know, plug yeah. in any other all-star around the league, you know, in a market that hasn't won anything. And imagine, imagine you had this star that wanted to stay and the organization throws him under the bus and lets him walk. And then you watch him become MVP. It's, uh, yeah, I can't imagine what Mavs fans I, must have felt at the time. And, you know, a big part of this, you know, the reason Dirk was able to speak about it and Nash even jokes about it with me when he talks about how Mark Cuban can now admit he made a mistake. Like winning a ring obviously makes it a lot easier for Dirk to talk about and for Mark Cuban to now laugh about and say, oh, I really screwed that one up. Yeah. But at the time, like think about what that must have felt like for those guys, even for Dirk, you know, this young superstar that lost at the time his best friend. Steve Nash was his best friend in basketball. And he knew it's because the organization just didn't want to pony up to keep him. And now he's watching that friend eviscerate his team and pull up on Jason Terry, who for some reason is giving Steve Nash an open three to tie. Like it, I I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's been this great NBA what if ever since it happened. Like what if Nash and Dirk have stayed together? Dirk obviously gets his ring. Nash never does. And, you know, what could the two of them have accomplished together if they hadn't been split up? And I think, you know, the third part of the oral history kind of goes into this. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Dirk says he's not sure, you know, like maybe they needed to be split up. You know, they both essentially had their best years after that. And could that have happened if they were on the same team? I mean, I think it could have, because I think those two fit together pretty damn well. You know, maybe Nash needed to play in Mike D'Antonio's system in order to fully unlock his playmaking capabilities. Maybe he needed to play with like an athletic dive man, like Amari Stoudemire, you know, and Sean Marion as well and run that spread pick and roll. And like, maybe he doesn't become the player that he became if not for all that. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of hullabaloo about the Phoenix Suns uh, medical department and how that maybe helped uh, lengthen Nash's prime in his career. So there are a lot of factors. I think I, I do sort of feel that, I mean, especially in 2006, right? Like the Mavs that year go to the finals and had a 2-0 lead on what I thought was a pretty average Miami Heat team. Obviously, Wade in that series was completely transcendent. But if the version of Nash that the Suns got was on that 06 Mavs team, I have a hard time believing they wouldn't have won that particular championship. I mean, you can make the argument, if even like 80% of that version of Nash is with what Dirk was at the time, how many of the 2005, 2006, and 2007 championships did the Mavs win? I, I, I think you could put the over-under at 1.5 or something. Like, they combined for three straight MVPs, three conference finals appearances. It's just that you know neither one could get over either of uh, Miami in Dallas's case or San Antonio in Phoenix's case. But it's like if they had combined forces during that time, you're telling me they couldn't have beat Miami or San Antonio once in those three years? Like I, I think they would have. Yeah. One of, uh, one of the things that I most certainly didn't know about until reading this was this contract situation with Nash and Quentin Richardson, which first of all, Quentin Richardson was easily like my favorite of the people that you interviewed in terms, like his sound bites were so good. Yeah. Did you know about that going in? No, I didn't. I, <clears throat> I remember like, I think I had heard it on the knuckleheads pot, like their podcast uh, with him yeah. and Darius. Mons. I, I, like, I feel like I had remember him talking about it somewhere, but I didn't remember the full details. And I just brought it up to him. Like, Oh, like, I feel like there was some thing with the contracts. You know, I feel like I've heard it before. And then he just went off into it and, and explains it. And yeah, that, you know, the cap came in lower than the Suns and a bunch of other teams had projected. So now they had to Brian Colangelo and David Griffin have to come back into this room with Steve Nash and Quentin Richardson and be like, oh, by the way, guys, uh, those contracts you agreed to, we need to cut down on them a bit to fit under the cap. And uh, and yeah, Steve Nash said, yeah, just take it off mine. And what I really think is interesting for people that have read the piece is like if you go back and, and, and read what Quentin Richardson says about that moment and how shocked he was. Because him and Steve didn't know each other other than being competitors and how like his mouth, his jaw was on the floor. And he says that his agent at the time says to him, like, you better take care of this guy. And then I think it's really interesting as the story unfolds, you know, who is Nash's biggest cheerleader as it unfolds. And you mentioned him being your favorite part of the story. It's Quentin Richardson. And 
Uh, David Griffin says it, that, you know, going into the series against Dallas, Quentin Richardson was the one really leading the team in, in reminding them, like, we have to do this for Steve. Steve Nash says that for a lot of that season, Quentin Richardson was essentially his mouthpiece and his biggest fan. Quentin Richardson is the one who, you know, when no one else would say it after the series said, I don't know why Dallas would let that guy go, but I'm glad we have him. And and then says to me for the story that he knew Steve was too classy to ever say anything like that. So he wanted to make sure he said what Steve wouldn't. And I think it's really interesting. Like even me, as I was piecing together the story, it was like, wow, I I would have never thought of it this way. But yeah, like it, it kind of fits that. Quentin says like he knew he had to take care of Steve after that moment with the contract situation. And then you see throughout the year and especially in that matchup against Dallas that he, he really did take it upon himself to make sure the team did it for Steve. Well, seems like Steve also did it for himself. Yeah. yeah. He took matters into his own hands. Um, but a few things surprised me about that. One, how had they not known what the salary cap was going to be before they agreed at least in principle, to the contracts with those players. Like, isn't... Because remember, the, the, the like, salary cap doesn't officially kick in until the moratorium. Until the moratorium's ends. over, yeah. So everything up to that point is based on the projections. Now, when, when no one's... Like, you know, David Griffin, understandably, you know, he's still an executive in the league, so he didn't want to get into too many of the details regarding that other than just confirming that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and Quentin, uh, for his part, just didn't remember these specifics. But what I wanted to know was... Was this an issue where it was only the Suns that had miscalculated this? Or was this the league projections ended up being off and it was everyone right. was in the same boat? That's one thing that I was not able to confirm uh, in the story. But uh, but yeah, that that is kind of a fascinating unanswered question. Because was it was it incompetence on the Suns part? or? Yeah. So the, I was curious about that. Like how could they have messed up that projection that badly? Another thing was that the salary cap was as low as it was. I think it was $44 million. Yeah. 15 years ago, like in 15 years for the salary cap to basically have tripled is pretty astonishing. And my other question was like, where was Nash's agent at while all this was going on? Because like you have the detail about uh, Q Rich calling his agent and being like, hey, we have this situation here. We might have to adjust my contract. And his agent was like, no fucking way. Yeah. But Nash is just like, yeah, take it out of my contract. And like, I, I, I got to imagine that his agent wouldn't have been entirely cool with that. Yeah. So Steve's uh, agent, I think Bill Duffy was, I believe, on a plane on the way to Phoenix or was with like another client or something, if I remember correctly. But uh, yeah, neither of their agents were present. The difference being that Quentin thought to call his agent and say, you know, what should we do here? Whereas with Steve, it was not even a thought. You know, for him to call his agent and, and figure it out, he just, I guess, wanted to make his own choice. And his own choice was, I just want to get to work. You know, I guess maybe he saw it as like, I already have the bigger contract. I'd rather like just take it off mine as opposed to taking it off Quentin's, which was a much smaller contract. But, uh, you know, again, Quentin, Quentin says he guarantees it was over a million dollars that, that Steve gave up. And, you know, Steve ends up saying to me, like, obviously, in, in hindsight, yeah, money's money, but it's not like it changed his life to not have that extra bit. But, uh, Definitely, definitely a pretty wild story. There's another wild story that you told me off air and off the record that we won't get into because I don't know how comfortable you feel talking about that. But apart from that story, which was about the free agent process that Nash went through before he he wound up signing um, with the Suns and the way that the Mavs may have uh, bungled that situation. Um was there anything else that really surprised you or that you found particularly fascinating? Something that you didn't know going into this that kind of caught you off guard? Um, that's a good question. I think the, the humility and I guess the classiness of Nash till this day, it didn't surprise me because I knew that's who he was. But even like hearing him talk about this series now, you know, 15 years removed from it, and he's still saying, you know, I never like to make things about me and him remembering the game one MVP ceremony and his only memory of it is like, yeah, like I didn't really like it because the thought of all the attention being on me on national TV before this big playoff series, like it just wasn't my vibe. Like it, I guess it doesn't answer your question because it's not surprising, but it did strike me. Um, and it really kind of hit home. Like, man, this guy, you hear about humble athletes or athletes that are all about the team. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you do wonder how much of it is for the cameras or whatever, but like this guy, 15 years later, 
you know, very easily could have just celebrated himself for this piece that was about essentially a celebration of himself. And instead he still wanted to make it all about, you know, how great of a teammate Quentin Richardson was and how, how little he wanted to make it about himself and all this stuff. And yeah, I, I guess that did strike me that, you know, Nash lives up to the billing as this like selfless teammate that just wants to elevate the team and doesn't care about the personal accolades. What was uh, your favorite interview that you did? I mean, I I think it was probably Steve just because it's Steve, you know, and it was, it kind of came late in the process. And for a lot of this story, I wasn't even sure if I could get him. And, and so much of it was me thinking that it was going to have to be an oral history about this great Steve Nash performance with everyone involved except Steve. So I think that coming together and, and talking to him was really cool. But also I, we mentioned it on another episode, like the Dirk, the Dirk call, getting that phone call from Dirk and Dirk was so into it and pulling up basketball reference and YouTube. And like, I could hear him reacting to watching these clips. It was like really, really cool. So yeah, one of those two ones for sure. Let's close with this just because I, I think this is maybe a way that we can marry uh, this piece with what we've been talking about with the last dance. I did find it interesting that based on what you were talking to Steve about and what Q Rich was talking about in terms of the team wanting to do it for Steve and some of the beat writers that you talked about for the piece, even talking to Dirk, they all kind of had this idea that like Nash was on a mission and that it was personal. And Nash kind of admits that it was like, and that he took uh, a lot of satisfaction in it. But he also said, look, like I didn't need any added motivation. And I've always felt that way. Like, you're a professional basketball player, you know, playing in the in the best league in the world. You are an MVP of that league. You're competing for a championship and you're just at the very top of your profession, which is one of the most visible, lucrative and glamorous professions in the world. How much added motivation do you need, you know, when you're going into a second round series or a conference finals or whatever it happens to be? And I was just, I couldn't help but think about that while I was watching The Last Dance and, and hearing Michael Jordan just talk about all of the different ways that he gave himself added motivation. Literally making things up. Pulling and a George nice Costanza, like it's only, it's, it's not a lie if you believe it. Like, <laughs> right. So I, I just found that interesting because the, the mythology of Jordan is he is this legendary competitor who just wants to win at all costs. And yet we're also expected to believe that he had something just a little bit extra in the tank that he was saving for what? Getting slighted by George Carl. He needed the motivation of Carl Malone winning MVP in 97. I don't know. I could never fully get on board with that. And I thought it was interesting like to hear Nash say, like he didn't need the added motivation. Like it was awesome that he had the series that he did against the team that put him out to pasture, as he said, but he was just going in there trying to win. So I thought that was interesting. And I also thought, him talking about the hole that he has inside of him for not winning a championship, but also the way that he's made his peace with that and the way that he is sort of able to reflect and appreciate what he did in his career. I, th- I thought that was really poignant and one of the most moving parts of the piece for sure. Yeah, no, even, even when he, when he said it to me, you know, I was moved by it and, and yeah, I think it, it fits perfectly with you know, kind of what we were talking about with whether it was Barkley or Nash himself and that like, they, they almost seem to be more at peace with their careers, even though they're known as these great players that never won than, than Jordan seems to be at times when talking about his career, which is considered the best in, in the sports history. Uh, and I do think that's really interesting. Um, also just going back to like the, the humble Nash, typical Nash stuff. Uh, there was an, another part of that, that like made me laugh out loud while talking to him. And it was, it was when he is like, piecing together his final thoughts when he hears like me reading out the stats, like how he performed in that series. And, and he ends the thought essentially by saying like, yeah, I didn't remember like the specific number. Like, I just know uh, we won the series and I played well. It's like, yeah, dude, you, you, you averaged like 30, 12 and seven for the series and averaged 40, 10 and nine in the last three games. And his, his way of remembering that was like, yeah, we won the series and I played well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. I do think it's funny that like, and I don't know how honest these athletes are when they talk about this stuff. And maybe we don't uh, give athletes enough credit in terms of them just sort of being ordinary people as often as we should. But I think I, like a lot of people, 
am sometimes uncomfortable with praise. And especially when you're asked to talk about it yourself, it's just not a really like natural or comfortable thing to do. So I think a natural impulse is often to like deflect or play it down. So I do get that. And I think, you know, Nash, at least what I know of him and what I've heard him say publicly, like that is definitely in character for him. Um, I want to just single out the quote that I was just talking about, and maybe that can be a good place to end this segment. Here's what he said. Obviously, I still have a hole in me that I was never on a championship team and I played so hard. But I also realized only one team wins every year and lots of great players don't get a chance to win. It can't happen for everybody. As far as the way I approach the game, I'm proud I was able to play as long as I could, be a part of some great teams, and persevere, despite being a six foot one guard that ain't winning any wrestling matches or track meets. You can't get carried away with the disappointments. You have to move on in life and realize that there were a lot more positives and great memories. I was just one of the guys that never got over the hump in a team sport. I think there, uh, there's a lot of truth in that and a lot of important lessons to be gleaned from it. So um, I'm glad you were able to get that out of him and, and put that to paper. I'm really glad that this oral history exists and that you made it happen. And for anyone who hasn't read it, I would really encourage you to go and do so. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And, and so far, the feedback seems good. So, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm proud of it. But uh, for the most part, you know, I think, um, you know, I, th- I think in this case, uh, we won this oral history. And I, I guess I performed well. <laughs> That's the perfect place to leave it, man. Uh, it was great talking to you. Looking forward to the next time we do this. And in the meantime, stay well and stay safe. Later.